0: Nothing happens, company isn't worth anything, The tech isn't worth anything, nothing matters if you don't have a great team that can breathe life into it, that can sell it, that can help the customers understand how to use it, that can build extensions and new code onto it. None of that happens without people. It's 100% people.
1: Welcome back to another episode of Oil and Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, sponsored by Inveris. Before I introduce this week's guest, I want to ask everyone to support the show by taking a few moments to leave a review on iTunes. Also, if you're interested in getting your hands on some OGGN laptop, hard hat stickers, check out the show for a 10 second survey. Anyway, I'm here today with William Fox, Chief Executive Officer of Data Gumbo Corporation. How are you, William?
0: Great, Paige. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah. Let's talk about how you got started in the oil and gas industry.
0: Sure. Well, I'd actually uh, gone to college for history because I thought I was going to be in the army for 30 years and it wouldn't matter. So <laughs> I did ROTC in college and then spent about four and a half years in the army as a, a tank guy and then a cavalry guy and got to see uh, scenic Baghdad and much more scenic South Korea during that bit. My wife, and inform- I met my wife in the Army as well, and she informed me that we were getting out. We were not going to be staying in for 30 years. So then <laughs> I had to find a job, and I've signed up with one of those uh, recruiting firms you know, that finds people getting out of the military and matches them up with industrial companies. And uh, I ended up with working at National Oil of Arco's MD Taco branch out in uh, Cedar Park. Okay. So I had zero prior knowledge of the oil and gas industry, but did a bunch of interviews, and that's where I got in.
1: yeah. Yeah, it sounds like happy wife, happy life, right? (laughs) Absolutely. I
0: 100% support that.
1: Fantastic. Well, now that we've established your start, let's kind of go through some challenges and maybe issues you've had during that time. Like you said, you didn't know you were going to join the industry at all.
0: It was interesting because, weirdly enough, that MD Taco division at the time was about 1,200 people, and I think at least a third of them must have been ex-military. So that kind of helped the structure uh, and just sort of the way people acted. That was a little bit familiar. And I was really lucky from the get-go to have some great bosses and great management. I didn't tell them I was going to name-check them, but Mary Costley and Steve Walsh and all that group there, and you know, hit the ground running and said, well, what's my job? And I said, well, your job is business analyst teams, you do whatever we have to do to keep the customer happy and support sales. And it was sort of a figure-it-out-as-you-go type situation, but I was kind of used to that. And one point, my boss said, you can do whatever you want to support the customers as long as it costs no money. Oh, Uh, So, (laughs) you know, had to be drink from the fire hose when it comes to what's a rig with some L feeds coming as you're drilling and just sort of learning as you go. But that was an interesting start. And about six months into that, I started having the idea that maybe I knew how to make things better, which, you know, is always needs to be taken in moderation. But I was, again, very lucky to have great management who said, well, look, if you've identified an issue in the case of we don't have frequent enough software releases or, you know, one of the customers has said they really want a cheat sheet that's laminated that can go in the doghouse on the rig. Great. Put it together. Give us a plan. What's the ROI? As long as I could put something in writing and make a case for it, I had a group that was willing to at least let me give it a shot. Right. Right. Well, that's great.
1: Let's talk about what you do now.
0: Yeah. It's been a few years at uh, National Oil Varco, and uh, that's where I met my co-founder at Data Gimbo, uh, Andrew Bruce, who was running the group that was trying to build an autonomous rig. It was the Novus Project. So I worked for him for a while, and then Later on, moved over to Ocker Solutions Drilling, which is sort of the opposite side to the number two drilling equipment manufacturer. Uh, Worked a little bit there in operations just in time for the uh, 2014-2015 downturn. So as we keep seeing, so we spent some time there. Andrew left and started Data Gumbo. Two years later, I followed him full-time and we originally started the company to do sort of data acquisition and standardization. And then over time, it turned into this smart contract thing where we use data to help people automate payments. So that's what we're doing today. we got offices in London, Stavanger, and now Al-Hobar, Saudi Arabia, along with Houston. Oh, wow. Yeah. That's amazing. You got to go where the uh, customers in the oil is, you know? Yeah, no, that's very true. It's very true.
1: So let's kind of get into leadership. What is leadership to you?
0: That's a great question. I've, uh, over the years, read an infinite number of sort of books on this sort of thing, both in a business and a military context. And I think that I would boil it down to leadership is setting an example and clearing a pathway for your team so that they can execute to the best of their ability on their tasks and also grow to the best of their ability as well. I had great leaders in the army. I've had some great leaders in the civilian world, and the best ones are the ones that said okay, don't come at me with problems, come at me with solutions, but then I'm going to find a way to help you out. I'm going to find a way to let you do what you want to do and make sure that you have additional opportunities down the road. And so that's what I've been attempting to do <laughs> myself now that I've been in sort of a leadership role for a while now.
1: Right. Do you have an example, perhaps, of when being a leader
0: was a difficult time? Absolutely. I've got a two examples come to mind in particular sorry for an, an army story but one of the things is even though you're in this gigantic organization and theoretically you're an officer 85% of the time you're in charge of almost nobody and you're on staff and that's just like being in a matrix organization in, in the civilian world you have responsibilities but no authority if that makes sense yes <laughs> and we were getting ready to go deploy to Iraq and we were doing an exercise and the colonel at the time said okay Fox, you're not going to sleep until you can get me 100% accountability of every single person in this entire squadron, so 600 people. And of course, I had a subordinate units that didn't report to me, but I needed to go check with each one of them and say, okay, where is everybody by name? Who's on leave? Who's here? Who's out? And it just became clear after about 36 hours that it was impossible. And <laughs> I finally said, I can't find everybody. And he goes, ah, wrong answer. And so we did it a little bit longer. And then finally, Sergeant Major pulled me over and he goes, look, it's never going to match. You've done your best. This is the 99% solution. It's going to be fine. Please go get some sleep. And so I just banged my head against the wall until finally somebody said, you know, look, you've done as much as can possibly done on this particular problem and you need to just accept it. And it's never going to be perfect. So it was one extremely unpleasant situation. And I think another example of a sort of unpleasant situation would be 2015 downturn sort of continued. I was working for MHVirus uh, North American operations and, you know, When I joined that organization, we had 300 plus people. And by the time I left in 2017, I think we were down to 68. Oh my. You know, it's not that anybody wasn't good. Everybody was great. It was a great team. Loved everybody I worked with. It's just when the orders evaporate and having to keep coming back every six months or three months to the various teams and say, I'm sorry, you know, we're going to have to do another cut or we're shutting this office down and your commute is now going to be twice as long. I mean, mine too, but... Just having to do that over and over and over again destroys the morale of an organization, but there was no alternative, you know. For those of us who were still lucky enough to have management positions, it was our job to be as professional and upfront and candid about it and take care of our people the best we can. But there's just uh, no getting around it when we have one of these cyclical downturns, especially in an equipment manufacturer.
1: Yeah, I completely understand that. I actually made it to the third cut during that time. So I got cut on the third round. So yeah, you know, my manager cried, so I mean, we all kind of cried, but anyway, it's not about me, so yeah, definitely see where you're coming from. So if you had a piece of advice to give our audience, what would that be?
0: Well, I wouldn't try to give everybody in your Augusta audience advice, but I think if somebody was new getting into the industry or either right out of college or maybe out of the military like I did, or some other industry, you know, the one piece of advice I would give is just you know, ask for more responsibility. Most of the time I've found is that there is not actually a plan and that things are just sort of happening because they've continued to happen via inertia. And if somebody steps in and says, you know, I would like responsibility for X, Y, or Z, or, hey, can I have a crack at this portfolio or this project? At least in my experience, four times out of five, the answer has been, sure, you volunteered. It's yours now. This is your problem. (laughs) That also, of course, brings new opportunities. And so I think my number one piece of advice would be, if you want to get more involved, volunteer for more responsibilities and go after them.
1: Take the initiative. Right on. Do you have a book that has influenced you?
0: You know, I cheated and listened to some of your other interviews, so I assumed <laughs> that you were going to ask me this. And I had to think about it, but one of the books that the corporate recruiters had me read 12 years ago, which is called The Goal, which I think was sort of the management hit of 1984. And it's all about how do you sort of remove constraints? And for whatever reason, that has stuck with me because to boil it down and there's a piece of it where they're explaining basically anything that comes between the order and you getting paid for that order that is not absolutely necessary, it should be removed. And that was in a manufacturing context, but more broadly over time I've started to think like, why are we having this meeting? Does this meeting add any value? Why are we doing a 40 page proposal if they're not going to read it? Almost anything I can think of in business, if it's not going to add any value or it's not going to get us closer to serving a customer and getting paid for it, and you know, should we just not do it at all? <laughs> <laughs> you know, so about once every three months, I freak out and cancel half of our standing meetings because it just- Because it
1: could have been an email.
0: Could have been an email. Exactly. Could have been a phone call. could have been an email. Maybe not even that. Yeah. Yeah. That happens a lot in this industry.
1: Lots of meetings that don't
0: need to happen. Yeah, well, and you know, there's lots of meetings that do need to happen, but it's sort of like we have to all be on guard to ensure that we minimize these sort of recurring standing things. And we're a software company, and I've sort of done software now, I guess, for 12 years. And it's really interesting seeing how different companies handle these things, because some of them they've sort of bought into, I believe, in the sort of uh, agile mindset of how do we build things incrementally and faster, but buying into all the ceremonies around Scrum, for instance, where, okay... Well, we're not just going to have one 15-minute stand-up. It's going to be an hour-long stand-up. And, okay, we've already bastardized that. We're going to do it every day, whether the people want it or not. And we're going to make everybody come. And it's like, okay, well, let's start. This is uh, Andrew Bruce's. and Let's add up the salaries of everybody who's on this phone call and see how much it's costing us per minute to have this, you know? Ooh. And so all these sorts of ceremonies that we have, like, okay, we're going to have this check-in, we're have that check-in. Pretty soon you end up with 12 hours of meetings a week. So I've been really lucky with my team, and especially Maria, our head of product, said, okay, we're going to have one stand-up, and then every other meeting is optional. Come if you actually care, and some of these meetings will be canceled unless anybody puts something on the agenda. All meetings must have an agenda, or we just cancel them. I think that's a good hygiene that we've been trying to stick to.
1: It's Mark LaCour, Editor-in-Chief at OGGN, and the energy industry faces challenges every day. And the events of the last two years have caused disruptions like never before. Companies in the energy industry need actual intelligence and a single source of truth that brings all the data together. Inevoris is the energy-specialized technology partner that provides intelligent connections for the global energy ecosystem. Only Inevoris has the analytics, people, experience, and industry scope to connect the right data and information in the right way to discover missed opportunities and deliver fast outcomes. Find out more at Inevoris.com. That's E-N-V-E-R-U-S dot Yeah, I like that a lot. Because I remember how much time was wasted going into a meeting. You know, it was like a weekly drilling meeting. And I'm like, I could be filing permits right now. I could be doing so much more. I could be getting these drilling permits instead of, you know, listening to all you bicker and it could have been an email.
0: Absolutely. One more thing on my soapbox here is, you know, when we're at big companies, there's just so many systems. Right. And now that I'm part of a company that, you know, is smaller and I'm sort of in an executive role, It's like okay, let's minimize the system. Let's have as few systems as possible. You know, when the question is, hey, where was that story? Well, it's here. Again, we're kind of a software side. We've got one ticketing system, Jira. It's got a wiki that goes with it, and we got Dropbox to store stuff, and we've got Big Bucket for code. So each thing has one place to go. And if the question is, hey, where was it? It's there. So we're not going to update it in five places. We're going to update in one place. Everybody's going to see it, and. That's something that one of the great things working for small companies, you can actually make decisions like that and not have to update things in IT system and ops system and everybody else's system. But there's that. Yeah,
1: yeah, there is that. (laughs) It makes sense to me. Speaking of tech, what's your most used business tool?
0: Gosh, I'd have to say for me, it's This is going to sound super old school, I guess, but it's still email. (laughs) For me, it's still email. You know, like we were just saying a minute ago, I'd prefer to send a detailed bullet pointed email that covers it. And, you know, if there's any decisions to be made, ask for a decision. You know, if there's any proposals, uh, make it and allow people to respond that way, sort of asynchronously, as opposed to constantly calling for meetings. That works a lot better with worldwide customers, too, because, you know, you've got some folks in Norway, you've got some folks in Saudi Arabia, you've got folks in South America and there's just no way, unless you're going to work 20 hours a day to turn that into meetings. So, I mean, for me personally, it's that. But I think my team and the company uh, makes a lot of use of Slack. Slack is ubiquitous now. And there's another meeting avoidance thing. If we can just put it in a thread and people can go work on it and update each other and come do it, see where everything is without having to ask people to stop. That has been a real game changer, something we didn't have 10 years ago for use everywhere. Yeah.
1: Yeah. It's a lifesaver because I'm the worst with email. So I would rather just, you know, put it in Teams.
0: There you go. Yeah, Yeah. all of our corporate cons have teams. So, of course, that means that we need to have Slack, Teams, Zoom, XYZ. It is what it is.
1: Yeah, yeah. Everybody uses it now. It's fantastic. Thanks, pandemic. So, I don't know if this is necessarily applicable, but who would you say is your most respected competitor?
0: (sighs) Well, I'll give you two answers. One of them is going to sound off glib and then the other one more direct. But for us, what we do at Data Gumbo with smart contracting is 10% tech. And 90% organizational change management in the sense that, you know, we make software that enables people to take a thousand page contract and that might be generating a couple hundred invoices a month and effectively automate 90% of that invoice generation. And that's great. But then you now have to convince everyone else in the organization that they don't need to still physically check it and that they don't need to still, you know, oh, we're going to, you know, nine ink signatures on this thing. And so the status quo and sort of existing processes, those are sort of number one competitor to, to us and any smart contracting type solution. In terms of competitors out there, you know, I think we're kind of button up against some of the established systems that currently sit between ERPs like SAP or Oracle and customers. So, you know, things like Ariba, for instance, or some of the other robotic process automation tools you know, they're trying to do the same thing, but they're automating steps or digitizing steps rather than getting rid of steps, if that makes sense.
1: Yeah. Speaking of smart contracts, can you explain exactly what that is? I don't think a lot of people really understand why you created a solution for the said problem.
0: Sure. Yeah. Well, so let me just start by saying this is not crypto. It's not NFTs and there's no apes and nobody's using a wallet. That's a whole separate bucket of stuff. What we originally started out to do was to try to just be a neutral third party to collect drilling data because, you know, there might be seven, eight, nine different vendors who don't particularly like each other on the same rig. And getting that data through one company, we tried at NOV, by the way, it's very hard when you're one of the vendors, right? So that was the original premise. And The thing was, if you have that data, you can do interesting payments related things with it, but everybody sort of distrusts each other. So it can't really just be your data or my data. It has to be a way to share it or to give the parties the feeling that, okay, nobody changed anything without me knowing, right? So that's sort of part one. And then part two is, well, we would let this thing run on auto if we understood or we agreed that the rules of our contract were being enforced clearly and neutrally, let's say. And so smart contracts, you know, they came from the Bitcoin and Ethereum outgrowth. The idea was that I'm going to write a contract that will self-execute. And that was for crypto stuff. We said, well, we don't care about the crypto stuff. We do care about self-executing these contracts. So it's really just dumb scripts. And the idea is either something really complicated or something really repetitive, that it's a waste of some person's time to check. You can write a little bit of code. It's not super complicated, which will then... Say, for instance, I had a field ticket that said, I hold 140 barrels of water from this tank to this SWD, and I got a tank measurement at that tank that said, yep, I saw 138 leave. Close enough. Pay it. Would be an example of a smart contract. Okay. All the way at the other end of the spectrum, hey, we just drilled a 2,000 meter section offshore somewhere, and now we're going to pay for all 65 product lines and services that went into that section using wits using data quality using all these different things and we just don't want to do that manually we want the code to do it for us and then let us know if anything didn't match so that was probably a terrible explanation of what a smart contract is but basically it's a dumb script that takes an existing paper contract and turns it into semi-automated code that's really neat
1: i really wanted you to explain it so people understood did I do a good job, or was that at least adequate? I think adequate? so. Okay. Yeah, I understood.
0: What I left off, there was the why. So why would you do that? And the answer is speed, accuracy. It's automation, which everybody can appreciate. You know, having less manual steps to do anything is usually better. And then increasingly, if we can get to finality. So let's say if the existing system is, you know, you're allowed to build the operator once a month. You better get everything right. If it's on the twentieth, you got to accrue the next 10 days and the next month. And then they take 15 to 30 days to tell you the invoice was a good or not. And then they pay you 30 to never after that, right? That's sort of the existing thing. So with what we do, the idea is that we can get to finality by tonight or you know, by the time the morning report comes in tomorrow, let's say 12 hours. So if you can get to finality in 12 hours, what can you do around more creative payments? What can you do around more creative financing? There's, If you can lay that base of, okay, we know this is a receivable that is definitely going to get paid, and it didn't take us 60 days to get there. It took us one day to get there. What can we do on both the buyer and seller side to get them their money faster, basically?
1: Gotcha. Gotcha. Okay. And I guess that also leaves out more human error, right?
0: Yeah. I don't know who originally said it, but I I saw something the other day where uh, old Elon was saying, all human input is error. (laughs) That sounds like something he would say. (laughs) I'm not sure that applies in all situations, but when it comes to rubber stamping two or 3,000 field tickets or hundreds of invoices at the end of the month as fast as possible as you can go home on Friday, that tends to be true. Yeah. So what would you say is your most important lesson learned throughout your career? Well, this is going to sound trite, but when I was young, I thought oh, you know, it's not about people. It's about how good the tech is or it's about how good the widget is and it will sell itself. And here I am almost 20 years later and it is 100% about the people. Nothing happens. The company isn't worth anything. The Tech isn't worth anything. Nothing matters if you don't have a great team that can breathe life into it, that can sell it, that can help the customers understand how to use it, that can build extensions and new code onto it. None of that happens without people. It's 100% people. I don't know why I, it took me... <laughs> <laughs> 10 years to realize what everyone else knew. But my number one takeaway is that the only thing that matters is getting the best people you can and manic attention to hiring. I think I interview every single person who starts at the company because it's the single most important thing I can do as a leader is try to get the best people I can into the organization and support them.
1: When did you realize that? Was it like a slap in the face or was it gradual?
0: You know, it was right after I left MH Earth and came over to Data Gumbo full time. And it was, you know, I think four of us sitting in a, an office, the Canon West Houston. And it was like, there's no one else. We have to do everything. <laughs> literally nothing will happen unless one of the four of us does it. And oh my gosh, this is our money. This is our angel investors money. We better hire somebody who can wear eight hats and is willing to do that. And you know, some people embrace that and some people don't and that's fine. But it's like, oh my God, literally we are creating this out of whole cloth because at some point, you realize that there is not like a predestined plan and things aren't running on a train on themselves. If people don't wake up and make it happen, nothing happens.
1: Yeah. (laughs) Onset panic. (laughs) Oh my God, we have to actually deliver now. (laughs) So why do you think your role now is important to the future of the oil and gas industry?
0: I'm not sure that me personally, I personally am important to the future of the oil and gas industry. I do feel like one of the things I've noticed is that I'm starting to be older than the clients that I'm calling on. And I I went, oh my God, am I a a grown-up now?
1: (laughs) I feel that so much. I feel that so much. (laughs) It's
0: like, wait a minute. So I do feel like I'm an elder millennial, I'm 40. I'm right there with you. And I do feel like it's kind of, the ball's starting to feel like it's in our court now. So speaking as a member of a class of elder millennials in the oil and gas industry, I do think it seems like starting to be on our shoulders now, just in general, Mm -hmm. everything. But more specifically, I think, What I, as part of Data Gumbo, can do for the future oil and gas industry is create a new set of tools that can enable huge back office efficiencies that will lower the barriers to entry for companies, not just service companies, but even if you want to start an operator. We all have to deal with the software needs to support that and reporting and finance and anything we can do to make it easier for that one person to run their company with uh, as few additional external resources required, you know, lowers the barriers to entry for everybody, regardless of what type of company it is. So I do think that's something that we at DataGumbo with our smart contracting platform are trying to do on behalf of everybody in the industry. Very good. Very good. Do you have a favorite podcast? Well, I have listened to yours before and I've enjoyed it. But yesterday, Spotify told me that I listened to 28,000 hours of podcasts in 2022 because I stopped listening to radio two years ago apparently my number one podcast is still Joe Rogan. So I guess if you just have it on in the background all the time.
1: You can't help it. He's such a great interviewer and he has such great conversations and
0: he's so open-minded. Yeah, I agree. I think Lex Friedman was my number two. So
1: Right on, right on. All right. Well, thank you so much for joining me today, William. If people want to reach out to you and or get to know more about Data Gumbo, how may they go about doing so?
0: Yeah, absolutely. You can hit me up on LinkedIn or at datagumbo.com, and I am William at datagumbo.com. So anything you want to know about smart contracting or just in general, yeah, feel free to reach out. Anything I can do to help people, I will do.
1: Awesome. All right. Well, that concludes this episode. So just remember it's up to you to open the next door.
0: Tune in next week for another intriguing episode of Oil & Gas Industry Leaders Podcast, a production of the Oil & Gas Global Network. Learn more at oilandgasindustryleaders.com.